you and I haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Bailey Wagner. I'm the rising adult director here. If you don't know what a rising adult is, that's what we call our youth. So I'm the youth guy, if you just want to say that. This morning, we're going to be continuing our study in uh, 2 Thessalonians. So I'd invite you to turn there with me. Um, and as you're turning there, I invite you to stand with me as we all actively participate in the reading of God's word. So would you stand? All right, listen, this is we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Thanks. You can have a seat. Let's pray together. Our Father, you give us your word because you love us, because you want us to know who you are, and you want us to know ourselves and our relationship to you. And God, we come to you this morning after a long week of school, winding down of warm temperatures. Uh, we're weary, Lord. We need help in our attention. I ask that you would be with us, that you would give us the attention we need, that you would open our eyes and unclog our ears to your word. And that in your word today, Lord, would we see your son, the Lord Jesus, as more beautiful and believable and lovely, even if that's for the first time. And we ask all this in his mighty name. Amen. So you might not know this about me, but at one point in my life, I was a child. Um, you know, I didn't always look like this. Uh, and I grew up in the church. It's um, just kind of something about my story. My parents, you know, were converted when I was like a two-month-old baby. And so I was raised in the walls of the church kind of at the same time as my parents were experiencing faith for the first time. And so part of growing up in the church, and like a lot of you know this, especially the kids in the room, is there's certain traditions that churches do that just kind of, you see it coming for like years and years and years, and you think, one day I'll get to participate in that. And for me, it was um, my youth group would have a cookout every year to celebrate graduating seniors. And so youth group and the seniors, and there'd be probably 20 of us, um, and our parents who would go with us would toast their kids. Like they would get up and say nice things about their children, right? It's different from a roast. They weren't making fun of us. It was a toast. It was nice. And so when I was a senior, my day had finally arrived, and I'd been looking forward to this day for years and years and years. And part of the reason that I was looking forward to this so much was because I was really, really insecure. And what I mean by that was I felt like no one liked me, that I wasn't good enough, that no one was proud of me, that I hadn't really accomplished anything in high school. And I felt that way even though that wasn't true. Even though I had parents who told me they were proud of me and that they loved me, I felt this way. So this meal comes and I think everyone's going to get to hear that my parents are proud of me and that they love me. And I thought if everyone hears it, like if it's spoken into existence, it'll be true. So the meal starts, right, on this fateful 
May afternoon. We eat hot dogs and hamburgers. And then the toasting starts. And there were probably 25 seniors. And so this toasting took like two hours. And so at the end of the night, as the dust settled, all the parents except one set of parents had said these nice things about their kids and told their kids that they were proud of them. And that one set of parents that didn't say anything, as you could probably guess, were my parents. And I was devastated. And I want to be clear that I wasn't devastated because my parents didn't love me or they weren't proud of me because they got in the car and they said, hey, we're not really public speaking people, Bailey, but here's how much we love you and here's how proud of you we are. But my insecurity, the fact that I had no assurance of things that were already true about me, that insecurity killed what was to be a sweet moment in my life and something that my parents and I shared. And I bring this story up because I think we all need assurance in some ways, that we all desire to know that we matter. We desire to know that we're loved. We want to be assured that those things aren't changing, right? That someone's love for us isn't going anywhere. <laughs> and in our passage this morning, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, as they write this, they write what we could consider a thanksgiving. Like it seems kind of like an aside in the whole you know, context of the book. But in this thanksgiving, they praise God for the ways that he's shown his love to the church. And particularly, they praise him for how he has called them, the church in Thessalonica, to himself. And in this thanksgiving, we see the assurance that the Thessalonians have because they have been chosen by God. And in the same way, God has called us, the church, to be his people. And we can be assured that he loves us and that he's faithful to his promises. So this morning, we're only going to look at two things, because last week we looked at four, and so if you do the math, it averages out to three points between two weeks. <laughs> we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at God's call and then our response. So if you're a note taker, God's call, our response. Let's look at God's call. If you look at verse 13 with me, and also, we're going to be bouncing around a lot, as you can imagine, in this passage. So if you've got a Bible, it would be helpful to keep it open. In verse 13, Paul writes this. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. So notice this with me, that Paul gives thanks to, because the Thessalonians are beloved by the Lord. He gives thanks because this Lord, Jesus, loves them. He gives thanks because God the Father chose them and that the Holy Spirit sanctifies them. And I think that deserves this Trinitarian language needs to be broken down a little bit further. So first, the Thessalonians, Paul says, they had been chosen by God, God the Father, as first fruits of salvation. And this language of choice points to the fact that their salvation was initiated by God. The Thessalonian church wasn't a remarkable group of people that earned God's favor. If anything, they were a people who did not deserve God's love. They deserved his wrath because they're sinners. But out of his abundant mercy, God chose them to be his people. He chose to save them from their sin. They're called the first fruits. That God's plan all along was to save these people, these Gentile people. And this leads us to the fact that they are beloved by Christ. Because they're chosen by God, God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, 
to come to earth, to put on human flesh and to live a sinless life, the life that the Thessalonians and none of us can live. And he, Jesus died the death that they deserve because of their sin. And through, them, through the Thessalonians placing their faith in Christ, they receive this undeserved grace that Jesus loves them and he laid down his life for them. And finally, Paul not only says that they've been chosen by God the Father, that they've been loved by Christ, but they're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That through, God, through being God's chosen people, through experiencing the great love of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in them and he sanctifies them. That he, the Spirit, is actively changing them and making them more and more like Christ. And in all this, God has accomplished these things through the gospel, that they've been called by the gospel, they've received faith in Christ, that they might obtain glory, the glory of Christ, that they might be with Christ forever. So all this, you know, triune, trinity language here, it points one to the fact that they're giving thanks that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit are at work in them. And this reality that God, Father, Son, and Spirit has been working in the church gives them encouragement, of course, but it also gives them assurance. And here's the assurance, that God has worked the salvation for the Thessalonians from start to finish, that nothing will change that, that they can have assurance of their salvation because God is the one who authored it, that they had nothing to do with it. And so what's true for the Thessalonians is also true for Christians today. It's true for you and I. When we come to faith in Jesus, it's because God chose to save us and he secured our salvation from start to finish. That God has chosen us to be his children. That God sent his son, Jesus, who willingly took on our sins and gave us his righteousness. That the spirit dwells within us and is sanctifying us. That it's God who orchestrates our salvation from start to finish. And God orchestrates it from start to finish in us because we're just like the Thessalonians in that we're sinners, that we don't deserve God's grace. The salvation is a gift from God that he freely gives to those whom he loves. And we can have assurance of our, we can have assurance of our salvation because salvation comes from God. It's not something we earn. It's something that we're given, right? It's a free gift. And because God orchestrates our salvation, it means that we don't have anything to worry about. It's not something we can lose. Instead, it's something that we can rest in and know that God loves us. And having assurance changes us. Like when we can really rest in the fact that God is the one who saves us, it changes us. Um, I had a friend in college who... Um, he began dating this girl, uh, and it was like the first relationship either one had ever been in. And if you could say anything about their dating relationship and their engagement, we'll get to that, is that it was super insecure. And so what do I mean by that? I mean that fear marked their relationship from like day one. Um, and there's this underlying fear on both ends that someone would do something wrong, someone would say the wrong thing, that they might not spend enough time together, that something just kind of in general might happen to just break the relationship up. 
So to combat this, as you do, you know, you spend all your free time together, that you kind of forsake your friends and like all the fun things we used to do and like go just spend time with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. And so each other, like my friend's girlfriend became the center of his universe because of this. Um, the uncertainty was just something that he couldn't handle. And like, I do want to say like when you're dating someone, like uncertainty is like a good thing because you don't want to treat it like a mini marriage. But for my friend, like it ruled his life. So as you can imagine, you know, time passes on and this guy proposes to his girlfriend. And guess what? The engagement was even worse than dating. Like it felt like there was more at stake because like money was involved. Um, but they still had this fear in their relationship and they just kind of doubled down on everything they were already doing. But eventually they got married, right? Uh, and at, th at their wedding, something really interesting happened because they made vows for the first time. Like there was like real skin in the game. They had a covenant commitment to one another that was witnessed by people that they had rings, like tangible reminders that like they're wearing to this day that remind them that the other person isn't going anywhere, that nothing's gonna mess this up anymore. And when they had this assurance that the other person wasn't going anywhere, it changed their relationship and it changed who they were. And I remember seeing them months after they got married and like talking to Liz and saying, they're different. And I don't know what it is. And Liz is like, well, it's clear, like they, they got married, like their fears went away. And Liz is for great observations. <laughs> so in a lot of ways, I think Christians can be like my friend here, that we can be incredibly just unsure of our salvation. And I think that's easy for it. It's easy to happen and it's common. It happens to all of us. One, because we can't see Jesus face to face, right? Like none of us in this room, I would bet, have seen Jesus face to face. And Jesus does, he does give us things like the sacraments as tangible reminders of the grace that he's given to us. But we have not seen his face with our eyes, right? We could be unsure because everything else we experience, we see. Um, and even more than that, I think we're unsure because we think if, if Jesus knew how sinful I really was, if he knew that I couldn't kick that one thing, if he knew all the ways I messed up, we think if God truly knew us, that he wouldn't love us. But that's, that's simply not true. When we see our salvation in the way that Paul, Timothy, and Silas are writing, which is that God shows us to be his children, that Christ unites himself to us by faith, that the spirit lives in us to sanctify us. When we take that in, that truth changes us. And it changes us because it leaves us no room to doubt if we did something right in our salvation. Because we didn't, right? That we could never do anything right to accomplish our own salvation. It leaves us no room to wonder if we did anything to earn our salvation or if we did enough to earn it because we can't earn it. This truth leaves no room to wonder if we truly deserve salvation because we don't deserve it. But instead, we're reminded that salvation is a free gift from God, that he gave salvation to sinners like us because he loves us and he's redeeming us. And in that, we have the assurance that we're never so good, that we're beyond the need of God's grace, and that we're never so bad that we're beyond the reach of God's grace either. And he moves towards us in love. It's accomplished by God. I think that means that you and I need to live in light of that reality. 
So first, this means that you don't have to earn your salvation. And I know what you're thinking. Like, whoa, 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 Bailey. I'm a good Presbyterian. I know I can't earn my salvation. But let me ask you this. Think of that one sin, um, that sin that you feel like you can never get past, that you can never kick it, you know, fill in the blank. Let's say it's anger. And your kid spills juice in the back of the minivan, and you blow it. You erupt. The juice was spilled in the back of the minivan. And after you calm down, after you realize and admit that you blew it, that you just popped your lid, that you got so angry, do you wonder, how could God love someone like me, someone who constantly struggles with this thing, someone who constantly fails? Or let me ask you kind of on the positive do you feel like you've got a real handle on things, um, that you feel like you've kicked that sin finally? Um, and in your pride, does that lead you to believe that you might be earning God's love? You might say, I know I can't earn God's love, but I bet he's really happy with me. Like, I bet he's looking a little more favorably with me because I finally stopped doing this thing. And regardless whether you fall into either one of these categories, whether you think God can never love me because I never... I can't kick this thing, or if you think, man, I'm killing it, no matter what, both examples show us that we think our performance is tied to God's love. But having assurance and salvation, meaning that God is the one who gives salvation as a gift, that means that we don't earn our salvation in any way, shape, or form. Also, having this assurance means that we can rest. We can rest knowing that God sees our sin. He sees us for who we are. He sees us as sinners. And he chooses to move towards us in love. The assurance found in the fact that God loves us and moves towards us, it also means that we can move towards others. That this means you can start a relationship with your neighbor or a coworker and share the gospel with them. This means that you can move towards people who are hurting. And even if these interactions don't go as planned, that you can know that God's opinion of you isn't changing because of that. That assurance isn't tied to anything that you do. So God calls Christians through the gospel. He orders and he orchestrates salvation. And I think this leads us to a question. I think the passage pushes us here as well. And it's this, if God calls us, how are we supposed to respond? And that's our response. Let's look at verse 15 together. Paul, again, he writes, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So while giving thanks for their salvation, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they hit the church with two commands, to stand firm and to hold to the traditions that they were taught. So what exactly does this mean? Why are they given this command? And I think the best way to understand this is to see that Paul, Timothy, and Silas are telling the church that they have to let their teaching become central to their lives, that it needs to be the foundation of who they are. And when the church is told to stand firm on the traditions that Paul, Timothy, and Silas were taught, we need to understand first what these traditions actually are, that these traditions aren't like specific doctrine that some people agree on and some people disagree on, right? This isn't like the reformed tradition. Uh, these traditions are not a way to determine the color of the church carpet. It's not a unique way to understand what songs we should or shouldn't sing in worship. 
But so what these traditions are, it's the gospel. This is what Paul, Timothy, and Silas have been teaching to the Thessalonians. It's the good news that Christ died to save sinners. And that good news is the foundation of their faith. It's what the apostles have taught the church all throughout the first century. And the proper response to receiving the gospel is to stand firm in it. It's to hold to it. So not only is the church you know, commanded to stand firm, but they're commanded to hold to the teaching that they receive. That this means that they're not adding anything to the gospel, that they're not taking something away from it, but instead they have to take what was given to them and hold on to it as it is. And also being told to stand firm and to hold on to the gospel means that these two things don't come easy. We often doubt if God could truly love us because of our sin. We often find ourselves wondering if the gospel is true. We often find ourselves wondering, do we need to add something to the gospel to make it less offensive or to make it more appealing to our culture? Paul wrote about this elsewhere uh, to the church in Corinth, which actually this passage is right behind me, which is really convenient. He said this to the Corinthians, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That the gospel is foolish to the world around us, and it's easy for us to get swept up into that, but we're called to stand firm. We're called to make it something that's central to our lives, even if the world around us doesn't understand it. We're called to make it the joy set before us, something that we love and cherish, even though it doesn't make sense. Um, and I think this idea isn't totally foreign to us because we, especially if you have kids, you do things that seem incredibly like illogical to the world around you all the time. So if you have kids, you know this. I don't have kids, right? So I'm talking about your kids, not my kids. Um, if you've ever been on a plane, I think everyone will get this. Like you get on a plane, you're waiting, right? I'm always in like the last group, so I watch everyone go before me. And you know, they say like, all right, active duty military and like mothers with babies. And you see like mothers with babies get on your like five hour flight and you get nervous. And you get nervous because kids are really unpredictable. Like no matter how old they are, but especially babies. And they're unpredictable because you don't know if they're gonna cry in the plane, if they're gonna get sick, if they're gonna be restless, or even if they're gonna take a nap. And if you're like me, this is when you think, man, I wish I'd really spent the money on noise canceling headphones. Um, and if you have kids and you travel with them, you know that the safer decision would to be just to stay home, right? That if you don't want to inconvenience people, if you don't want to do something that everyone around you is annoyed with, you just wouldn't do it. But if you're traveling with kids, you take them anyway. And you take them anyway because you love them and you want to be with them, that they're your delight, they're your joy, they're central to who you are. And your love for them overrides any logical idea that you shouldn't take a kid on a plane. And it overrides anyone else's comfort. You don't care because they're your kids and you love them. And our lives have to be centered on the good news that God loves us and has secured our salvation from beginning to end. We have to let the assurance we have of our salvation be central to who we are. We have to hold this as something dear to us, something central to our lives. It has to be something that we find joy in, even though the world around us doesn't get it, even though it seems illogical to them. 
So because we're told to stand firm in the gospel, that means we have to actually practice standing firm, that we need to put, we need to put hard work in to do this and to do this day in and day out. And so what does this look like? I think it looks like practicing repentance and preaching the gospel to yourself. When you give in to that old sin, right, when your anger erupts, when you say harsh words to your spouse, when you find yourself telling white lies in the office, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is for you, you can turn to Jesus and confess your sin. You can, can, and when you confess your sin, you're turning away from your sin and you're turning towards Jesus in repentance. And when you do this, when you practice this repentance, you have to preach the gospel to yourself, that you have to remind yourself that God has cleansed you from your sin through the blood of Jesus. And that the Holy Spirit is living in you, sanctifying you in that very moment. And because of that great truth, nothing, not your sin, not the world around you, nothing can change the fact that God loves you. You can remind yourself of that assurance day in and day out. Practicing repentance, practicing preaching the gospel to yourself. It's a daily thing. It's something we need to do over and over and over. Um, There's an author I love. His name's Eugene Peterson. He was a uh, Presbyterian minister who went to be with the Lord a few years ago. Um, and at his funeral, his sons talked about, the. They, it was kind of funny. They said, my dad only preached one sermon. And, you know, after years and years and years, that sounds kind of offensive. But what they said was every night when we went to bed, when the kids went to bed, Peterson would tuck them in a heart of everything he ever taught about the Bible. He'd tuck his kids in, he'd kiss them goodnight, and he would say, God loves you, he's on your side, he's coming after you, and he's relentless. And for years and years and years, like 18 years, Peterson did this for each of his kids. And these words were central to their lives, and they grew to believe these truths that God loved them, that God was on his side, that he was coming after them and he was relentless. And standing firm in the hope and assurance we have in the gospel looks like this. It looks like repeating it to ourselves over and over, letting that drive down deeper into our heart. It's not that we just believe the gospel. It's not that we just have it in our head, but we take it to heart that we center our lives on it and we constantly remind ourselves of the good news that Christ came to save me because God loves me, that the spirit dwells in me. So finally, this passage ends um, with a benediction, like a good word pronounced from God over these people, right? Um, verse 15, which we just looked at, is a command. And God in his providence, as he's winding this letter down through, through Paul's hand, he leaves them with a benediction, a good word of what God will do. Um, and if you're not familiar, if you've been coming for a while and you see benedictions happen here and you're like, what is it? Well, here it is. It's a blessing that is given to the church to remind them of what God has done and a promise that God will continue to work in and through them. And this is what Paul, Timothy, and Silas write as a benediction. It says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. 
that this first is a reminder that salvation is received by grace. It's acknowledging that their eternal comfort is not something they've earned, but it comes from God. And notice the personal language that they use here. That they say, our Lord Jesus Christ and God, our Father. That this salvation isn't from a God who's impersonal and from a distant and unknowable Savior, but instead we're saved by a personal God who knows us and who loves us. When we place our faith in Jesus, he unites himself to us. And when we are united to Christ, we're adopted into God to make us more and more like Christ. That the triune God is personally and intimately involved with us. That he loves us in an intimate way. And this prayer isn't just, um, or this benediction isn't just a reminder of what God has done, but it's a pronouncement of what God will do, what he'll continue to do in their hearts and in their lives. They say that the triune God who has saved you will also comfort you and establish you in every good work and every good word. That this is a promise that God isn't leaving us where we are. He's not saving us and then leaving us to our own devices, but he's growing us in good works, that he's working in our hearts. He's making us more like Christ. So if we can be honest, uh, we'll land the plane here. So if you've checked out, this is a good time to, to hop back in with me. Um, the default condition of our hearts is to rebel against God, that we do everything we can in our power to avoid obedience to his word and to run away from him, right? Like that's the default setting for the human heart. And apart from God intervening, that's the direction that we'll continue to head. But the good news is that God the Father is the one who moves towards us because he loves us. And he leaves nothing up to chance when it comes to rescuing us from our sin. That he calls us through the gospel. And when we place our faith in Christ, we're counted as righteous in the eyes of God. So maybe you're here today, you struggle with assurance, you always have. You can trust that God doesn't make mistakes. That your salvation is more secure than you could ever imagine. And that's because God plans your salvation, accomplishes your salvation, and applies your salvation. That he doesn't leave it up to you. And that's a beautiful thing. Maybe you're here, you're someone who hasn't trusted Christ. Um, you know, I don't want to assume that we're all kind of in the same spiritual place here. If that's you, I want you to know that someone has seen all the ugliness of your heart, all the bad things you've done, all the things that you feel shame and regret about. If someone knew that, how would it make you feel if they moved towards you in love instead of running away? Because that's what it looks like for God to intervene in our lives and to save us, that he sees everything we've done, but he moves towards us in love. Brothers and sisters, we have a great assurance that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, love us and has secured our relationship with him forever, that we will spend all of eternity with him. So let's go. Let's give thanks for that. Let's also ask, stand us firm more and more. Let's pray.